Lovely to see such an excellent turnout for this next, uh, after Rowan Williams's um, uh, performance last week, this next investigation of our Passion Tide themes. Um, and today I'm very glad to welcome to our midst uh, Father, Father Nicholas, who is um, a, a good old friend of mine in that he did his doctorate at uh, Cambridge University under Janet Soskis, and uh, that was on uh, the theme that he's going to talk about today. So this is his thesis book, The Father's Will, Christ's Crucifixion and the Goodness of God. So I'll give it a nice little um, push in case you're um, inspired to buy it, though it is quite expensive, I fear. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't advise buying it. Go to a library. <laughs> <laughs> so Nicholas Lombardo originally read um, philosophy at Brown University, um, so he has a good analytic training in philosophy, um, and then became a Dominican and is at the Dominican House of Studies here. He did his MDiv uh, thesis at the Dominican House of Studies on uh, the category of desire and emotion in Thomas Aquinas' thought, which is also published, um, and in fact he was finishing that while he was also writing his doctorate, which was quite a feat while he was in Cambridge. He now teaches at Catholic University of America um, in the area of historical and systematic theology. So welcome, Father Nicholas, it's a delight to have you here. Um, just by way of a segue from last week, um, Rowan Williams was talking last week about his own recent book on the doctrine of Christ on Christology. And what he was taking for granted in that exposition, although he didn't um, explicitly put it in these terms, was that the, the very fact of incarnation itself, Christ coming in flesh, uh, being crucified and rising again, is itself a form of atonement. The very fact that God became human transforms the capacities of the human in relation to God. So you could say, and I think Father Nicholas agrees with me on this, that this is the first point on the sheet, that when we think of the, as it were, cosmic implications of the incarnation, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, um, and that uh, Christ, according to John chapter 3, effected thereby our salvation. That notion of incarnational transformation is the sort of um, uh, matrix for all other theories of what is happening through uh, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. What we're coming to today are the more tricky questions of why Jesus had to die, what the cross is for, would it have been different if he hadn't died in this way, if he died happily in his bed age 90, for instance? Would that, would that have affected the same transformation? And clearly the New Testament does not think so. So at this point, I'm going to hand over to Father Nicholas, and he's going to take us through some of the theological puzzles that come up when we start reflecting on that problem. Well, thank you. It is really a great pleasure to be with you uh, this morning. It's better. Yep. Just knock it to make sure it's working. Okay, there we go. So it's really a great pleasure to be with you. I'm from an ecumenical family myself. My father's Catholic, my mother's Baptist. So I'm really fully at home in this context. And I'm both here doubly glad just to be here with you, but also 
to talk about one of my favorite topics, which is God's goodness, and also how this relates to salvation. So just as a kind of a broad overview, what, one of my themes that I want to put forward as we go through various questions, historic ways of thinking about uh, Christ's crucifixion, is um, how to think about things that gives a maximal account of God's goodness, a way of thinking about things that puts God the Father, God the Trinity, in the best possible light. Because whatever that is, that's got to be the answer. Um, and the other, just, uh, uh, I'm very pleased to be following the Archbishop of Canterbury, first of all. Uh, but secondly, uh, I was pleased to hear, I just got a little recap of some of the themes that he talked about. And there are a couple that what I'll be speaking about today, it connects to uh, in a deep way. Number one, he, he spoke about, I'm told, the non-competitiveness between God's freedom and human freedom. So that's one big thing that I want to have in the background of what we talk about today. And the other thing is paradox. And you know, wrestling with paradox, a way which doesn't necessarily mean just stopping and throwing up your hands, but, but wrestling, see if there's something that can come from wrestling with that paradox. So the way that, uh, to, to kind of, what this, the outline will do is just maybe for the first 10 or 15 minutes, you know, depending especially if you have questions along the way, just to, to raise some of some puzzles that you perhaps may have thought about in the past, that you kind of, bits of scripture that in the back of your mind, or maybe in the front of your mind, you're thinking, how does that fit together? Um, and then look at different proposals for, historically, for how to, to understand Christ's crucifixion, which it's very striking is that well, there have been many ecumenical councils that say a lot of things about Christ. There's never been any definitive teaching about how the cross affects our salvation. So it's a very striking thing that Christians, without you know, any you know, grumbling or dissatisfaction, are quite happy to say that our salvation comes through the cross. But when it comes to exactly how, we've never gotten around to agreeing on that. Uh, and yet, it on many levels, it strikes us as true, as natural to the logic of faith. But in the details, questions can, can bubble up. So, um, so first, so, so we're here in, the, in this first section of the handout. So first, well, it's not so much a puzzle, but just a big question, is the way Jesus in the garden, in that crucial passage in Gethsemane, says, you know, Father, may this cup pass for me, but not my will, but your will be done. We don't, we're not told what the Father's will is for him. All we know is the Father does not stop the chain of events from happening. So there's a silent answer, but there's no positive content, no message of here's what I want from you. All we know is the Father does not want to stop it from happening. To get more answers, we have to dig deeper. Okay, so that's one, one question. Another has to do with the figure of Judas, which really we know from the Gospel of Judas in around 200, has been raising questions for centuries for Christians. And the puzzle is basically this. Well, Judas plays this crucial role in the story of how Jesus ends up being betrayed and crucified. And of course, salvation comes through the crucifixion. So did Judas do what God wanted him to do? Is he kind of doing God's dirty work? Is he... Um, somehow used by God? Is he somehow get more, should he be getting more credit than he has? Um, or, you know, when, and 
And then, you, and yet, when you look to the Gospels, uh, Jesus says, "The Son of Man indeed goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed." But why woe? Why woe to the Son of Man who's betrayed? If it's all been kind of set up, if it's all part of the plan, at the very least, it seems like that might be unjust. So that's that's another puzzle. Um, another puzzle, which it's more ambiguous, it can be taken in different ways, but the way that when Christ is crucified, the gospel accounts talk about the sky darkening and there are earthquakes. Well, that's kind of a, a natural image of nature not happy, like nature sad, nature not pleased with what's going on. And since uh, God is the creator, it also could be taken as suggesting that God the Father is not pleased with what's going on. And yet, isn't the crucifixion supposed to be this turning point? Isn't it supposed to be a turning point when, when things are set right? So why is nature, and symbolically perhaps, God the Father upset with what's going on? Aren't they, aren't they happy? Um, another connected to that is the way when Jesus is handed over, I think it's in Luke's gospel, he says, now is the hour of the power of darkness. Well, this is, okay, so it's the hour of the power of darkness, but isn't God getting what he wants? So those are, those are some, some initial puzzles. Let me just pause here. Any questions or comments? Is yes. the, the natural reaction of the earthquakes and the dark sky and all, is that a message from God saying, you know, pay, pay attention to earth, this is, this is the real deal, something big just happened? That's, that's, uh, that's, a, that's another possible interpretation. Um, it, it's really, it's not explained, it's open to a variety of possible interpretations. Jesse? Um, I think there's... For me, there's constantly a question of cosmology, of what exactly are the powers in play? Is God the Father truly sovereign over this world? Is What is his relationship to Satan and Satan's dominion over the world at this time? And what's happening cosmologically here is very central to all of these questions for me. Yes. I'll just leave that, I mean, that, that because some of the later things will address that very question. But that's another aspect, you know, in the sense of, is God powerless or not? You know, what, what are the powers of evil? What, are the, what, are, what is the respective roles that these different entities have? In Luke's Gospel, it's explicitly said that Satan entered into Judas, right? So Judas becomes the, um, the exponent, as it were, of Satan's will. That's not the uniform view of the New yeah. Testament, is it? Yeah. <coughs> yes. In terms of the agency of Judas or of any sinner, uh, God does not exist in sequential time the way we do. He exists. He is. We do not sin because he knows, but he knows that we sin. We have been talking about atemporality yeah. and its relation in a good Thomist yes. way. But. Yes. <laughs> and, th and that is one 
that's one very good way to, to solve some of the, like the puzzle about Judas. Uh, what, what I mean to do here is more just to surface some of the puzzles that, that come up in thinking about, about the crucifixion. I guess it seems like we're tested sometimes. God knows the outcome, but we have the free will. And, and I'd often, I would say also that lends itself to Pilate as well. I mean, you know, clearly Pilate sinned, okay. Um, I think he was put in a bad situation and he kind of failed the test, I suppose, as we all do, often. The thing too is it, it strikes me that Christ, God, came to earth as a third-class passenger, okay, basically. And I think the violent death is going to prove that. I mean, I suppose he could have arranged his death, his physical death any way he chose, but in fact chose to go as a common criminal. Yes, and, and um, I'll just say those are all good parts of an answer to the puzzle, um, which I agree with. Okay, so now the next part is just heightening some of these puzzle passages that, that when you put them together, make the tension, the paradox, stronger. So one of the most important passages in the Gospels where Jesus gives a hint of what he expects to happen to him and also where he gives an interpretation of his death. Because it's funny, there are many, many times when Jesus somehow hints about his death or somehow alludes to it. Like, so for example, all the parables where a son goes away and then comes back, there's, you know, there's a, that's just one example of many. There's a hidden illusion that he expects to be killed. But there are actually very, very few times when Jesus explains what he thinks his death is going to accomplish. Most of the time, he's just kind of throwing out these little hints. One of the few times he does is when he speaks about his death being a ransom for the many, that he came to give his life as a ransom for the many. Ransom being from like the, the Latin word redemptio, redemption, which, and it means like ransom today, a price uh, that's paid, a way to free people, whether from imprisonment or something else, a kidnapped person. So that's one, um, one important element. But then, but then unpacking it, so what does that mean? giving his life as a ransom for many. Does that mean that Jesus came to commit suicide? That he came to earth to find a way to get people to kill him? And this sometimes comes, people are wonder, wait a second, if Jesus' mission intrinsically involves giving his life, does that mean he's somehow on a suicide mission? So that's uh, another potential puzzle. Then we also have some passages in the New Testament that speak about the crucifixion as somehow part of a plan, a foreordained plan of God. So in, in, in Acts, on Pentecost, Peter says that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Um, okay, so exactly in what way is this part of God's plan? Then further on, or Paul, in Galatians, Paul writes that Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age 
according to the will of our God and Father. Okay, so does that mean that the, that the will of our God and Father is for Jesus to die? What, what does this mean? Now, I would say these passages can be interpreted in different ways. So it's just that this is a puzzle because you can see how they lend themselves to, wait a second, is this suicide? Does God want the death of Jesus in a very strong way? And uh, the last thing to bring out here is there's a, a passage in Luke's gospel when after the resurrection, Jesus is walking to Emmaus and there are other <laughs> disciples with him and they don't realize it's him. And he says something that would be very uh, important in medieval theology. He says, was it not necessary that the Messiah suffer in this way? And this word necessary has probed a lot of theological reflection. Um, so in the Middle Ages, there were lots of debate about in what sense is it necessary that Jesus die on a cross? Couldn't God just snap his fingers? Why, does this, why is this necessary? In what sense is this necessary? So like to, to, when we bring this together, say, with the problem of Judas, on the one hand, there's, there's a straightforward issue of if God knows that we're going to sin, well, you can say, well, this is you know, his way of knowing he knows what's going to happen. He knows what we're going to do. But there's not necessarily any, any other constraint in this puzzle. But when you say God knows this is going to happen, and moreover, it's part of the plan, and it's part of an arrangement which God wants to be able to save the world, then there's kind of, wait a second, does God want this moral evil in some way? How can he have this plan which involves moral evil? Does this mean that he wants it in some way? that Jesus wants his own death, that God wants his own death, in a, in a way that sounds like suicide. So these are, these are the other parts to kind of to heighten this paradox and these tensions. So again, I'll, I'll pause, um, and then you know, we'll turn to traditional ways to try to put these things together. Any, any questions? Yeah. So I'm, I wanted to, to um, go back to the theme about the ransom. Mm -hmm. And um, I connect that some with uh, the notion of sacrifice and the notion that Christ is a sacrifice for our sins. And it's very hard to piece all that together in the traditional way that you think of sacrifice because sacrifice would be a purposeful act. And yet the way it all unfolds in the New Testament, it's not purposeful at all. I mean, it would, if you relate it back to the story of Abraham and Isaac, um, this all just happened and Christ was delivered to the Romans by the Jews um, because he was viewed as a heretic. And so there wasn't any purposeful sacrifice to save us. It just happened and then we explain it as a sacrifice. I have a hard time understanding that and also the notion that the big plan is my son goes to earth, goes, you know, lives on earth, but he'll be sacrificed to me to save us. And that seems like a weird way to just <clears throat> do this. You know, it, it's, uh, so that's my question. Uh, well, in, in many ways that, uh, I share that question. Yeah. And, uh, and because these are, I mean, in, in, I think, it, and this is maybe a self, uh, you know, subject to debate, but I'd want to say that a good Christian account of the crucifixion has to accommodate these different elements that, on the one hand, the cross is in some way 
something that brings about reconciliation, forgiveness of sins, that at least in some way it's a sacrifice. But how then does this be get brought into how the events unfold? Like, you know, that you know, the way you know, Jesus is doing um, his you know, his mission, he's seen as a heretic, he's put to death. There's a kind of a chain of causality that unfolds that from our point of view very naturally, kind of there's a give and take. Um, so how can all of these things be put together with it also being somehow God's plan? There's one way which you may intentionally not hinted at is there could be a way in which it's a plan in a sense in retrospect. That God kind of lets things play out and then says, okay, I'm going to kind of in retrospect in a sense, you know, make this salvific. Um, and that's one option. I myself have entertained options like that. Um, I would would tend to say that the that the bits in the New Testament that talk about this being a plan from the beginning suggest it's it's not just a plan in retrospect, but actually from the beginning there is a big plan. But then it raises the question: Where is kind of what seems like a kind of just a playing out of human freedom, which seems very natural and orderly? Um, how does that fit with this also being encompassed within a divine plan? So anyways, I don't have an answer yet to this part of the talk, but just to say that's, that's a question which um, needs to be answered. Of course, wouldn't, wouldn't you say, uh, Nicholas, that one of the most important theological features of the Garden of Gethsemane is that Jesus himself wills what he is going to do. In other words, it doesn't just happen to him. He sees it coming and he voluntarily wills it. And so that struggle that we see going on is the struggle between the natural human desire not to die and the divine desire within Jesus himself. Because so far we've been talking about the relationship between the Father and Jesus, and that's the main focus of the book. But of course, later centuries clarified that Jesus himself was both fully God and fully man in that moment of decision. Yes. Yeah, and just to, to, to emphasize that, I think it's one of the unfortunate tendencies of some way to look at the cross is that it pits father against son. Mm -hmm. And so I said, whatever, as kind of like a principle I would put out that whatever our story of the crucifixion and how it saves, it should somehow make it clear that the father and son aren't against each other um, and that the son is fully uh, representing the Father and at one with the Father in what he does. Now, there is definitely a human struggle, which we see in the Garden of Gethsemane, but that if a story is told such that it's father against son, um, that's, that's a real potential problem. And it's also a, a moral problem in, in that it can become a kind of justification for child abuse and violence against the vulnerable and so on and so forth. There's many feminists. <laughs> Right. Some questions, I guess. But perhaps Jesus' death was more of a foregone conclusion, not necessarily a planned one. But in other words, it's like a soldier, you know, like, you know, you're gonna leave the trench and you're gonna go get that other you're pretty certain you're gonna get killed. Okay? You might get lucky, but you might end up dead. You likely will. So I wonder if it might be question of foregone. I would say again, father and son, I mean, 
remember, the Father and the Son are one. Okay? So, I mean, it's not the typical sibling, you know. And in terms of like pilot mag, could it be, look, um, I recently bought a toy for one of my grandchildren. I knew they were supposed to share it. Okay. I also knew it was a gyroscope. One of them would not want to share it. Okay. But I thought it was a good lesson for them. Okay. So I was right. I was absolutely right. Okay. So I wonder if it can be that kind of situation, perhaps, with us here, and also again with the other. I wonder if again it might be just something. But actually, that's, that's very much the way I want to look at things myself. Right? And one way to solve the issue of Judas, for example, that it's not so much that God says, you, Judas, have been destined for all eternity to betray my son, and I'm setting you up for this. But that God knows that someone's going to betray his son, and as it happened, it was Judas. So that there's inevitability to his death, an inevitability to the way he is treated, but not, but that's kind of like a statistical inevitability, given the human race and how we are. But not a, a destiny of you are going to do this. Yes, and then we must push on. Sure, sorry. Um, I, I wonder also how much of what Jesus is doing, and even the apostles in the New Testament, in the in Acts and Solomon, in the later New Testament, are doing, is fulfilling Hebrew scriptures. And I'm wondering how much of an answer or, or a helpful interlocutor looking to those prophecies might be in helping to understand some of these. I don't know. There's like, what, 600 prophecies that Jesus fulfills in his lifetime? 200 or something? Or in this like period? Um, but... Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of wondering as we're thinking through all these problems, all of these things were prophesied. All of these things were meant to be fulfilled and meant to happen. It's not like the will or, and plan of God was some hidden thing. It was quite clearly in their scriptures to the amount that Judas betrayed Jesus for. So yeah, I wonder if that might be helpful. I, I think very much so. And uh, I especially like the prophecies of the Old Testament, which in my reckoning are much more numerous, that were clearly not intended to be prophecies by their authors. You know, things often called typologies, figures, the story of Abraham and Isaac. I think it's, it's vanishingly improbable that the author of the story of Abraham and Isaac was given any supernatural insight that the story of Abraham and the sacrifice of Isaac had any connection to a Messiah and a cross and crucifixion. And yet for the early Christians, when they saw it, it was obvious you know, once they knew the story of Jesus and they read Abraham and Isaac, they're like, oh, there's another level to this story. And um, I'll just say in brief that one of the most helpful Old Testament prophecies for thinking about Christ's cross, and I think I can say this by Jesus' own authority, is the story of Jonah. That the book of Jonah was extremely important to the early Christians for understanding who Jesus was and his mission. It's a prophet that Jesus himself explicitly connects himself to. Uh, he says, you know, the only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. And in early Christian art, it's amazing that if what we have, which is mostly in the catacombs in Rome, you know, before 300, there's not much that survives elsewhere, that the vast majority of the images are of Jonah. Like, more than there are of Jesus. There are like over, I think... I don't know what it is. It might even be over 100 images of Jonah. The next closest thing is Moses, like maybe a dozen to 20. Um, so Jonah was seen as a really important way to understand who Jesus was. 
And so anyway, I'll stop there. A little bit will come up later, but that's my, what I would suggest. Please. Okay. So now turn to some, okay, so what are some ways that the tradition has generally tried to wrestle with this question and answer it? And we're going to do things not quite in chronological order, uh, but to start with Anselm, who is widely, if not universally acknowledged as being charting a new direction for the Western tradition in thinking about these things. And there's this threefold, and little, there's a threefold uh, way that, to think about these things that, especially since uh, a book by Lutheran theologian Gustav Olan about 100 years ago, has been seen as a really good, not exhaustive, but a good starting place to categorize different ways of thinking about how the cross saves. One of them is linked to Anselm. Another one is linked to his almost contemporary close follower, time-wise, Peter Abelard. And then the other being a theme within uh, early Christian authors, often called the devil's ransom or the devil's deception. Uh, so we're going to look at these three main, which is ways of thinking about things which have been widely uh, seen as a good spread of the land of what's out there. And so I'll start with Anselm, then Abelard, and then go back to the early Christian approach. Could I, could I just Please, mention, just, uh, Nicholas, we discussed this before, yes. and it's because of what Jay has already raised, that you could say that each of these three has an implicit theology of sacrifice as well within it, because that's unavoidable. Yeah. Can you situate who, who these three persons are for us? Sure. So Anselm is writing his uh, famous book uh, uh, on why God became man around 1100. Uh, and then, and he, uh, he is, he was Italian, ended up in a French monastery, and then became the Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, Peter Abelard is French and associated with the University of Paris, and he's known for being one of the great intellectual stirrers of the pot in the 1100s, raises lots of questions, which doesn't necessarily... Uh, himself answer, but just raised a lot of questions and thinking. And so Abelard's coming shortly after Anselm, and he's aware of Anselm's proposal, and he's critical of it, and responds to it with an alternative theory. And then with the, uh, with, uh, the this early Christian notion of a devil's ransom, isn't really a theory in the way that Anselm is like, I'm going to wrestle with this question, I'm going to give an answer to this question. Peter Abelard is also, he's writing in the context of a scripture commentary on Romans. And there's a bit of a theory, because he's responding to Anselm's theory, but two, Abelard is not as, I am sitting to put down a theory. And then when you turn to the, the early Christian authors, when they speak about this, they're much less talking about a theory. It's a trope, a, a theme, and when they're commenting on the crucifixion, and they're you know, reflecting on it, They'll bring up images of the devil being deceived or a ransom being given him. Uh, but it's not a theory in some way, which makes it more complicated and difficult to interpret what, what, they're, what they're proposing. So with, with Anselm, uh, we, his, his book, Cur Deus Homo, on why God became man, is prompted by 
wrestling with two questions. One is that that passage in, in Luke that we spoke about where Jesus says, was it not necessary that the Messiah suffer? So he's really interested in necessary. Why did it need to be this way? And in what sense did it need to be this way? And he's also then concerned, why, why did God become man? What, what, is the, what were the reasons, what were the motivations for God to do this? Um, so, in, in a broad overview, one thing, first of all, to say, because Anselm is sometimes seen as, as having, presenting his, his answer to be maybe harsh or um, uh, a kind of rigorous in a kind of unfeeling, calculated way. But when you, when you read the document, you, you see that he's, I mean, he's, first of all, he's just a very sensitive thinker, very concerned about the kinds of things modern Christians would be concerned about in terms of God's goodness, God's justice. And he's also, in one section, very concerned about the precise issue of how could God the Father want the death of his son? And so he really wrestles with how, in what sense could he, could he want this? And he, and he says, in a sense, all the right things, all the things that you could say, I'm not satisfied, but uh, well, all the things that one would want to say about God not wanting you know, his son to suffer in, in a way that we would find objectionable. And ultimately, his proposal is that the offense of sin called for, it was an infinite offense because it was against God. And like, when you multiply anything by God, you get infinity. So sin, human sin, finite in itself, but it was something, we owed something to God, we didn't give him. So there is an infinite debt, which, according to Anselm, then leaves us in a, in, a, in a troublesome spot because we've got an infinite debt, which is beyond our capacity to repay. So what to do? Well, God sends his son to repay this debt because, because he's human. It goes to our spiritual bank account. And because he's God, it can be something infinitely good. And Anselm does not frame this in terms of, well, okay, so, you know, blood was shed symbolically by sin. You know, now there needs to be, uh, you know, an, uh, a pint of blood from Jesus. To No, it's what needs to happen, according to Anselm, is something so wonderful, so generous, that it overflows and makes up for this infinite debt. An image that comes to mind... A long time ago, when I was middle school, I had a friend who was this gifted artist, and uh, you know he would he would draw with um, like a, a fountain pen, and so one of the downfalls of this was you get ink blots, and so he in this one drawing he did he had a big ink blot, and he turned it into something beautiful. He incorporated it into the picture he was drawing. So I think of this as what Anselm is proposing. It's not that, okay, inkblot, time to get it erased or canceled out, but something needs to happen to kind of infinitely rebalance the scales. And so if we have Christ, a God-man, he can do this. And, the, the, and, and then Anselm says, what is the most beautiful, generous thing that could be done by this God-man to make up for this infinite debt, well, if, if he were to give his life 
that would be the most beautiful sacrificial thing that we could imagine. And this will then restore us to God. So there's more that could be said, of course. Lots has been, has been said about this. But th that gives give you some overview of Anselm. I was there, if you wanted to add anything to that or just... Only that enormously important for him is that both God's justice and his love must be aligned. They mustn't be out of sync. So sin has to be dealt with. Um, but at the same time, it has to be dealt with in a way that in no way undermines the effusiveness of the divine love. I think that's the really yes. animating feature, isn't it? It's not like, we'll look the other way and pretend it didn't happen. And that's why I think some people don't find Anselm attractive, because they would rather that there was just mercy and not justice. <laughs> and in fact, uh, Eleanor Stump's recent book that we put on the list presents one of the most recent and important philosophical negative engagements with Anselm on precisely that point. Okay, so I'll, I'll turn to Abelard now. So Abelard reads Anselm, and he's not happy. And one of the things he's not happy about is, why does God want the blood of his son? He'll frame it that way. So you know, it's not necessarily the most generous way to interpret Anselm, but Abelard's throwing punches theologically, and he's saying, hey, this is saying that God wants the blood of his son. That just doesn't make sense to me. And he also raises a really clever and powerful theological objection. He says, if you needed this to happen before God could forgive sin, what is Jesus doing in the Gospels forgiving people's sins? You know, he's saying to people, your sins are forgiven. But according to Anselm, this could only happen after the crucifixion, after this debt has been repaid. Um, so unfortunately, Anselm was dead by the time Abelard wrote. He might not have been interested in reading it anyways. So we don't really know how Anselm uh, would respond. A later defending uh, a more Anselmian approach would respond by saying, well, it, the, the forgiveness of sins before the cross happens in view of God's knowledge of the cross that is coming. But it's still, either way, it is a, a powerful objection that, that Abelard raises. But he doesn't just object to Anselm, he also makes an alternative proposal. He says, well, uh, what the cross accomplishes is, well, first of all, when you hear the story of the cross and Christ's self-sacrifice, it moves us to repentance. It moves us to imitate the kind of love we see on the cross. And that, says Abelard, gives birth to charity in our hearts, to the Holy Spirit coming to dwell in our hearts. And that is what saves us. So it is us looking at the cross, in a sense, and seeing it, and letting the story of the cross move us, and not just in a, in a sentimental way, not just in a human way, but it becomes a conduit for the Holy Spirit to enter our hearts and to fill us with God's own love so that we can respond and, and live the way that Jesus lived. Um, in, in Olan's typology, in his Gustav Olan's typology, he will often call, or he does call, Anselm's way of understanding redemption as an objective account, in the sense that there is an objective problem of this debt of sin, and it is objectively paid back. 
by Christ. And he calls Abelard's the subjective account because it's not so much there's this objective thing, although Abelard will use language that, that does not rule out those mm -hmm. possibilities too, but that there is a, the essential movement that he wants to emphasize is how subjectively we're affected by knowing the story of Christ and knowing of his love shown on the cross. Now, uh, with Abelard, a possible issue is, okay, if the story of how the cross is salvific has to do with our subjective reaction to it, how can the cross be salvific for those who don't know the story of the cross? Uh, for infants, for example, you know, uh, or now it's widely held by many Christian communions that there is a very healthy possibility of salvation for those who aren't baptized, for those who've never heard the gospel. So if Christ's crucifixion only saves through our knowing the story and responding to it, how could Christ have died for them? How could his salvation reach them if it's this subjective path of salvation? So I'll just pause here. Do you have anything to add or, or questions about Abelard? I think they're dying to hear your solution. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I should say that Father Nicholas is very unusual in supporting this last theory in its patristic form. Um, so, sock it to us. <laughs> <laughs> so, for the first thousand years of Christianity, before Anselm, the primary way in which Christ's crucifixion was understood was through the category of redemption. And it was often associated with reflection on the crucifixion being somehow uh, a ransom to the devil, or the devil being deceived, he's tricked. Uh, a famous image that's used by Gregory of Nyssa is that Christ is a fish hook, oh, sorry, a worm dangling on a fish hook, which then, you know, is dangled and uh, and then the devil comes along like a fish and swallows it, thinking he's getting um, Christ because he's getting the human nature, the worm. But in fact, he's hooked by the divinity. And then death overcomes, is overcome from the inside by Christ being swallowed by the fish. Uh, and this is often, uh, and Anselm does this. When Anselm starts his theory, he does spend a little time not just with his own positive proposals, but also with a negative rejection of this idea of the devil having rights over humanity. Because this is, sometimes this language is used, uh, Augustine will talk about the devil having quasi-rights. It's important that he says quasi-rights. But So this language of rights enters especially the Western tradition. And Anselm says this is, this is terrible to think of the devil having rights that God has to respect. And so that's one, he just kind of quickly brings it up and just kind of swats it away. And this is where, this is a kind of unpopular thing to, to talk about because it's associated, wait, are you saying that the devil has rights that God has to respect? Now my own kind of response to that and in, in just kind of clearing the ground of why I think this is worth entertaining is that the patristic authors who talk about this, and it's not just patristic authors, 
It's in Acts of the Martyrs, some of the earliest Acts of the Martyrs. They use this language of the martyrs being swallowed by the devil and death, and then being spat out, just like Christ. Um, is that this is, the Christians were not unfamiliar with metaphor and with literary devices. And they're also not really attempting to put together a theory of salvation or of atonement. I mean, there's no early Christian document, a theory of atonement. It doesn't exist. They didn't talk in those ways. And that what instead is going on, in, in my view, is the early Christian authors are telling the story of salvation in a way that gives full play to the power of evil and sin, that has an interaction between human freedom or demonic freedom and God's freedom. And most importantly, they're not just focused on the crucifixion. This moment of the crucifixion is one moment of a drama where the crucifixion is the hour of the power of darkness, but the resurrection is where God truly acts and where salvation really happens. So the, what I would propose, and so this is my interpretation of the early Christians, so it's kind of bringing these together. But I will say it is really remarkable how much the, you could kind of name any significant patristic figure, and they all will use this kind of imagery in one way or another. And uh, so it's, 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 it's just, it's so universal, it's out there. You occasionally have people like Gregory of Nazianzus kind of saying, hey, let's not get overboard. You know, the devil doesn't, you know, we, we can't be, speak too literally of the devil having rights. But those are kind of corrections to ways to misunderstand uh, this imagery. And as far as I can tell, because like a trace, why is this so widespread? It's in the East, it's in the West. Why is this imagery, and it's so early, from the second century, and interestingly, the first time, as far as I can tell, we see it, is not in a reflection on Jesus, but in stories of the martyrs of Lyon, when they're talked about, this imagery is used. And so as far as I can tell, this is all coming out from exegesis on the book of Jonah, that the, book, the early Christians knew that Jonah was this key thing for understanding who Jesus was and his mission, um, and so they are reflecting on it and then using it as a, as a source of metaphors to understand the, uh, the meaning of Christ's cross. And um, I'm going to kind of slip a little bit into four here because this is kind of, I'm kind of shifting from the early Christian approach to uh, what, the way that I'd want to do with it. But I, I think it'll be useful to flesh it out more. So the first thing that I want to propose, which I think is in keeping with the early Christian, is to keep, what is salvation? Uh, it's not just, it's like being freed from sins is kind of a secondary thing. The most important thing about salvation is that we come to share the place of the Son within the Trinity. That we're joined to the Son through his human nature. We get joined to his human nature through the church, which is his body and we get connected to that body through the sacraments. And so being joined to Christ's human nature, we then have access to his place within the Trinity. Within the Trinity, we're not in the place of the Father, we're not in the place of the Spirit, we're in the place of the Son. And so, so the incarnational principle that um, uh, is the key, because that's, that's what salvation is, being drawn into the Son's relationship with the Father. And you need the human nature to be able to get inside the divinity. So 
But then you have the problem of how do we, how do we get attached to Christ, given, especially given our, our situation? Well, we need uh, Jesus to overcome in his own flesh all that keeps us apart. And a big part of it is our own sin. And that's, that's, you know, it's much more difficult because that's an inside job because it's not just like God can do this from the outside because he's got to do it from the inside and do it in a way that doesn't violate our freedom. And here, I often think of a story about Mother Teresa that to me is an image of what this is about. Uh, this is uh, a Franciscan friar is told to me second or third hand was in, um, in India visiting the missionaries of charity and helping them. And there was a home that was taking in a lot of people, as they do, and particularly women who'd been on the street, forced into prostitution, etc. This one woman had been taken in, and she was being really nasty to the sisters. And she was just too much for them to handle. But fortunately, Mother Teresa was visiting, and so they bring it to her attention, we need your help. And they briefly explain the story, and she immediately runs over, and just, without saying anything, embraces this woman tightly. And for a while, the woman is cursing Mother Teresa, spitting on her, slapping her. But after about 10 or 15 minutes, she just goes limp and starts to sob in her arms. And in many ways, this is what I think is going on with the crucifixion. The father gives his son into our power. He lets us do what we want. He absorbs it. He absorbs all the power of evil, all the power of sin. Whatever we throw at him, it's not the plan that you're going to sin or that's good, but whatever we throw at him, he absorbs. That's the hour of the power of darkness. Of course, his love is operative, but it's the hour of darkness. And then with the crucifixion, sorry, with the resurrection, now something new has happened. New life has come to into uh, not just... Uh, it comes into Christ's broken body and all of that destruction of sin now is overcome and new life is made possible precisely because Christ absorbed all that evil and sin and kind of sucked the poison out uh, so something new could happen. And uh, so when thinking about the crucifixion where this goes to is I think it's really important to, to keep that Trinitarian salvation in mind, but also to see it as part of a two-part act or three-part act, that the crucifixion is one part of the story, but it's not anything without the resurrection. Now, there's a one line in Paul, it's a little, compacting a little bit, but Paul says something like in 1 Corinthians, you know, if, uh, if Christ had not been raised, you're still in your sins. That with just the crucifixion, we're out of luck. It's the crucifixion plus the resurrection that matters. And so uh, the resurrection, the crucifixion is the price of our salvation, the redemptio, the ransom that has to be paid, but the resurrection and all the power that flows through it, through the church, through the sacraments, that's our actual salvation. Um, so that's what, uh, but we you know whatever, Whatever kind of moves that is made, whether you know you like some of these moves or not, I think it's uh, it's really important to 
keep that wide image focus and to include the resurrection in the story. And that where I think the essential misstep that Anselm and Abelard makes is they reduce the question of salvation to what happens on the cross. And whenever you do that, not only is that going to be too small of a focus, but inevitably you don't really have room for evil, for human freedom to be part of the drama. And inevitably, then there's a drift, I think, to have there be a split between father and son. Because if you just have the crucifixion and you don't have room for the other parts of the drama to play out, well, you've got something really bad that happens, the crucifixion. And if there's no other actors besides father and son, well, the father's the last man standing. He must have wanted it. Uh, so I'll stop there and, and, and open for questions and, and comments. We've got only five minutes, but what I should add is that happily, Professor Kathy Grieve is here with us today and next week <laughs> next week she's going to give us the full story from Paul so this, this conversation isn't over even though I have to run and put on an alb in five minutes so uh, yes could you speak to if any of this is um, in any way tied into Athanasius divine dilemma yes I, I, I think it all fits very neatly and uh, now one thing Athanasius in, in, on the incarnation he avoids speaking about a ransom to the devil mm. he does speak about a kind of, I don't know if he uses the word ransom but a connection to death and I think that and, and kind of, the way I kind of want to broadly talk about the devil's ransom in interpreting the early Christian authors is that and often you see it in their own text they're talking about devil here. Wait, now they're talking about death. Mm. There's a way in which it's kind of functions as a global term to encompass all the powers of evil, um, human, whatever, and also death. That they're all kind of lumped to what is the, you know, the target of the ransom, so to speak. Yes. Is it not the idea that it's not just the death on the cross, but it's that separation at that point of death, you know, where he says, you know, Father, where it's just separated. Jesus is completely separated from God at that point. It's like the book sort of goes over top, and, and the, the, so, I mean, God is essentially separated himself from his son and the Trinity. I mean, that to me is just, that's the moment, but it all turns right at the resurrection, but that it's a you know, God is essentially killing God. I mean, that, that separation to me is stark and, and there. Um, well, there are many moves that, that people want to make with, okay, what's going on between the Son and the Father on the cross? The starting points I have, and I'm still puzzling over that, and I guess we all will be for all eternity, but um, what the, the, the key move where I want to put my foot down first is when Jesus says at the Last Supper, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And so that whatever separation, you know, to spe speculate about that, I generally want to put that just in the human nature. But, but whatever, whatever to talk about there is that there's some way in which when we look at Christ on the cross, we're also seeing the Father. And then part of where I, where I spoke about the Trinitarian salvation piece, and one of the implications of that is we can have an explanation for why does the father send his son? Why doesn't he come himself? You know, a human father, a good human father would say, well, at least a heroic human father would say, no, son, I'll do this. So why didn't the father do that? Well, there's the explanation 
with the Trinitarian view in mind is because the Father can't do that. Because it's got to be the Son who comes. Because it's His place within the Trinity that we're meant to share. And so it has to be the one who, the Son who becomes flesh and passes through death on our behalf. It is actually, though, at this moment of, my God, my God, why has I forsaken me, that this impossible paradox of the complete unity of Father and Son and the apparent total separation in the moment of death has to be faced out. Um, I think that's one of the reasons that Ron Williams is so insistent on the unavoidability of paradox within this hypostatic union within Christ, because Christ himself is fully God as well as fully man. And often we kind of slip back naively into thinking of the Father as God and the Son simply as human. Um, but that's where we get caught. One more question, Stuart, then we well, must finish. Just a couple of voices that come out of the mm -hmm. scriptures, um, uh, which tease us up in some ways, this paradox. Caiaphas saying, isn't it better that one man should die for us than all the people perish? This is in the, in, the, in, the, in the Gospels, and then, of course, in the Praetorium, before Jesus is crucified, this dramatic encounter with Pontius Pilate, ricocheting back and forth between the crowds, their internal conversation, and Pontius Pilate asking at the very end, where are you from? And uh, so, to me, these sort of tee up the whole incarnation and, uh, and, and then Jesus going to the cross. But I often wonder what Jesus, what we think Jesus knew as he was going to the cross, other than I want only to do the Father's will. And what is that will to reconcile the human family to their neighbor? And that's when we throw the best we have at him of religion and Roman justice, and what it brings to <coughs> is death. And in, in that sense, Jesus does draw the venom of the best of the human race and the worst into his own body. And the resurrection answers that. So I don't know how to get beyond that, what Jesus would have known. Well, this is something I wrestled with a lot, even before starting my doctoral work. And because I wanted to, I was trying to entertain a thing where Jesus, in a sense, goes to his death, not realizing maybe until the last minute that this was actually the plan. But I was persuaded otherwise. The first thing that, that changed my mind was reading N.T. Wright's book on Jesus and the victory of God. And I just started to wrestle with all the different scripture texts of the New Testament that talk about Jesus expecting his death and expecting it to somehow be salvific. And so on historical, and then I read other things. There's a great book, if you're interested in this question, The Historical Issue, by Scott McKnight on Jesus and his death. And it just kind of goes through all the historical things. What did Jesus know? When did he know it? And what does he expect from it? And I started to realize that if you cut out from the gospel any expectation on Jesus' part that he knew that he was going to die, and then the other things where he gives some positive evaluation of it, you actually have very little left of the gospels. It's so ingrained. So um, now it leaves lots of specifics kind of to questions, but I came to be historically persuaded that he really did know and had a very... Um, deep sense that something it was part of the plan somehow 
Father Nicholas, we have to finish now, not only because you have to go and celebrate Mass, but because we're about to, and I want to thank you very much.